Welcome to this message from Alpha and Omega Christian Fellowship. We are a family on a journey to become more like Christ, sharing His kingdom by expressing His love. We hope that you will be blessed and encouraged by what we have to share. Once again, it's good to see you all this morning. I want to pick up uh, on a flow that's really been a great blessing to me. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about relationships within the body of Christ, specifically strategic relationships. A couple of weeks ago, I I used the analogy of Moses and Aaron and how Moses needed an Aaron, and through Aaron's influence, Moses accomplished what what God's calling and purpose was in his life, but he needed somebody alongside him. And and sometimes we need an, an Aaron to come alongside us and help us discover and walk in the grace that God has put upon our lives. And other times, we need to be that for somebody else. And it was a beautiful service to me, a wonderful awakening. Last week, Pastor Andreas ministered on and gave beautiful examples of spiritual fathering and mothering and how, and the beautiful testimonies that he shared of how lives had been changed through this principle. People had been ushered into the call of God in their lives. They'd been shifted from one place to another, sometimes geographically, sometimes occupationally, certainly spiritually, and, and in terms of thinking and understanding and entering into callings and things. And there's just been, there's something on this message that I feel is very powerful, and I want to just, I want to continue in that flow this morning, because there is one character trait for me Personally, I see it in my, in my own heart and in my own journey, and as I pass through others, there's one character trait that separates those who say they want to be discipled from those who are disciples. And that one character trait, in my mind, is a spirit of meekness. And I want to talk to you today about a spirit of meekness. What is meekness? My understanding, experiential understanding especially, is meekness is simply a desire to learn, to apply, and to be corrected. When you learn something new and you begin to apply it, it's tricky. It's difficult, right? Any new skill, any new way of thinking, you fumble and you make mistakes as you go. A meek person is willing to learn new things, to take on board new things, not just to go, oh, that's very interesting, but they are willing to change the way they behave, the way they do things, to apply what they have learned. And as they do so, they also are willing to be corrected and, in fact, value correction in their application. I was watching this. Let me not, let me not go, go jump into too many examples too early. Meekness is also a willingness to adopt and adapt another way of thinking. For me to adopt and adapt to another way of thinking, I need to be willing to let go of my own way of thinking. Amen? And that's very often the hardest part and the greatest piece of resistance that we face in mentoring, in spiritual fathering, is in, in being mentored, is the needing to lay aside the way I've always thought about this or the way I've always seen this, the way the context I've always understood this in so that I can embrace a different way Yoked with the word meekness is the word submission. It means getting underneath. And I want to say to you today that meekness is not weakness. In fact, far from it. Because a meek spirit will, will go from strength to strength to strength. And in keep, keep on increasing in strength. 
You will see that somebody who is meek will grow in some of the more silent virtues of Christianity, like self-control, for example. Control, self-control and meekness is not weakness, it is strength under control. Strength that has been channeled and is governed rightly. And those who are wise learn how to work this out. In a nutshell, to be meek means to be teachable, willing and able to learn. And you're going to know in your own walk of life, there's people you've dealt with, maybe in the workplace, maybe in the home, you can't tell them anything. Any of you raised any teenagers? Hallelujah. <laughs> it's, the old, it's the old story about, you know, when I was 16, 17, I, my father, he just was, he knew nothing. And by the time I turned 23, I was amazed at how much he'd learned in the past five, six years. It's, it's the idea that you can't teach them anything. They know everything. And that's kind of the opposite of meekness. But also, you know, and you've seen it in yourself, when someone's trying to help you and guide you, and just you don't want help. You want to do it your way. You think you know what's best because I've done it this way. My grandfather, my father did it this way. My grandfather did it this way. And so this is the way it's going to be. And you're stuck. And you will keep doing it that way, but you're going to be stuck getting the same results you're getting. So let's start off with looking at a couple of patterns, a couple of of principles of Scripture here. And I want you to understand, I want to to cushion this message on meekness within the context of relationships. You can put it in the context of a husband and wife relationship. When husband and wife are meek towards one another, you have the power for tremendous personal growth and also for tremendous personal agreement. You also, in, primarily, however, I want to put it within the cradle of, or cradle it within the context of relationship within a, a spiritual mentoring position, primarily spiritual fathers and mothers, or a pastoring relationship. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1 in the Passion Translation, Paul says this, I want you to pattern your lives after me just as I pattern mine after Christ. That may seem like a very arrogant thing to say. Now, Paul is saying a couple of things here. He's saying, first of all, I want you to adopt the same attitude I have, that I am patterning my life after Christ. And likewise, I want you to pattern your life after Christ. That's the first thing he's saying. But here's another thing that Paul is is saying, and he's being blatant in it, and he's being unashamed in it. I want you to follow my example. I want you to do what I do, the way that I am doing it. Why? Because he's writing to a group of people who are in a real, real mess Remember I spoke to you earlier on when we did communion about 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and how Paul begins to deal with them? This is where it's found. It's the first verse of the chapter. I want you to do and model your lives after mine. In other words, I'm going to set an example for you of what right faith looks like and right behavior looks like. And I want you to live like me. Jesus said this, Luke chapter 6 verse 40. A disciple is not above his teacher. But everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. And this this verse really implies an internalization and an embodiment of a life, of a character, of a nature, of a vision. It means you get it. You've got it. You're not just trying to do outwardly something to appease somebody or to make them happy. Oh, this is what I know is expected of me and therefore I'll do it. Or this is what they want of me. I am actively looking at somebody else's life and allowing myself to adopt and change 
according to the example that they set in front of me. Now, this requires a measure of trust, wouldn't you say? Huge trust. To have somebody in your life, and you're willing to say to them, tinker at your leisure. If you see something in me that, that you got an issue with, or that you think differently about, or that you see is wrong, I give you the freedom to come in and correct me. Change me. Change the way I'm thinking. Point me towards the truth of what God's Word says. Show me how to do it. I'm watching you. Let me learn from you. It takes great trust, and it also takes great discernment. Because if you put that kind of trust and influence in the hands of the wrong person, you will be used, you will be abused, you will be hurt, you will be skinned and thrown away. And let's be honest, folks, we see a lot of that in the church today. High-profile guys who go into very impoverished communities, and they are driving the best, and they are wearing the best. None of their people... None of the people they lead look anything like them. Something wrong there. Doesn't it, doesn't it make you question? Doesn't it make you think, hmm? None of them have a relationship with that kind of person. No, he's up there. He is the man of God. And you can't question him. You can't correct him because God speaks through him to me. He is the man of God. And there's abuse there. And there's... So I'm saying to you, be aware of that. And we'll touch on that in a moment now. These kinds of relationships are not something we just jump into. And truth is, as I've just mentioned to you, we have a right to be skeptical. Even 1 John 2, 26, the Apostle John writes, he says, I'm writing these things to you to warn you about those who will come in and lead you astray. There are those even within the body of Christ who will lead you astray into strange doctrines, into funny ways of doing things so that they can benefit. And they've got different motives. Sometimes it's money. Sometimes it's control. Sometimes it's status. It's all ego. It's all pride. Be careful. There are lots of people out there like that. Paul writes to the church of Galatians in chapter 5, verses 7 onwards. He says, You were running the race so well. Who has held you back from following the truth? It certainly isn't God, for He is the one who called you to freedom. This false teaching is like a little yeast that spreads through the whole batch of dough. I'm trusting the Lord to keep you from believing false teachings. God will judge that person, whoever he is, who has been confusing you. And so here you have a very interesting case where the two narratives that I've been speaking to you about today merge. The first one is this. The people of Galatians were under Paul's covering. He was their spiritual father. He had tremendous influence over their lives over their faith. He taught them how to walk in righteousness and in the ways of God. But then in came some other teachings. In came another way of thinking. And the people began to embrace it. They said, oh, you need to do this, and you need to add this to it, and you, go, they, 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 you, know, add, you need to observe the festivals and observe the Sabbaths, and you may not eat this, and you can only eat that. And all kinds of Judaic law and different ways of seeing things and doing things came into the setting. And so here we see those who now, through their own misunderstandings, will lead you astray, will lead you down another path. And Paul is saying to them, saying, hey, wake up. Who's bewitching you? You are coming under a different influence here. What God intended for, for your good and how God intended you to live in liberty and freedom is now being jeopardized through an influence that you are allowing to come in. You are giving ear to the wrong voice. Listen to me. I am your spiritual father. I am your apostle. I will teach you the truth. And again, these comments don't come from an arrogant heart. 
These comments come from the heart of one who dearly loves them, who traveled a long way to reach them, who ministered the Word of God to them, who struggled with them, who's endured with them, who's praying for them, who sincerely cares for their well-being. And he says, you are listening to the wrong voices. Stop it, because these things will lead you astray. They will lead you to a harmful place, outside of the fullness of the will of God for you. They're putting limitations on you that God has not put on you and does not want on you. Come out from under that, Paul says. Follow the teaching that I've given you again and again. And so I understand it's important that we don't just rush into these kinds of relationships where we allow people to have huge influence on our lives. It's one of the problems, folks, with the modern age that we're living in that so many voices are so easily accessible at all times to us. You can listen to whatever you want to on YouTube, on Facebook, on whatever, whatever social media platforms you want to, and the algorithms are adjusted in such a way that they will keep feeding you what you want to hear, and they will lead you further and further and further down the truth. What was that statement that we heard this week about the algorithm? Yes, the algorithm is my shepherd. I shall not want <laughs> It's not the algorithm that's your shepherd, although many people are being shepherded by an algorithm. And they get lost. They follow trails that lead them deeper and deeper and deeper into deception. Ladies and gentlemen, God has set loving fathers and mothers within the body that are there to protect you from these kinds of things. They're ordained to set an example before you and to lead you in the ways of truth. That's why recognizing and knowing these individuals is so vitally important. They are your first port of defense. And, you know, if you think about this, there's a reason that Paul gives criteria for elders in the church. It's not for the purpose of hierarchy or class. These people are better than others. No, it's for the purpose of testimony and example and for the purposes of respect that you can recognize those who are truly walking in faith that are living out the Word of God and give them the honor that is due to them. Because when, they, when Jesus ministered the Word of God, the, the hallmark of His ministry was that He ministered with authority. Why? Because unlike the scribes and the Pharisees who were just doing outward things, Jesus truly embodied the message that He preached. To Timothy, he writes... If anyone desires to be a bishop, he desires a good thing. That's uh, 1 Timothy 3, verse, I'll start from verse 2. He says, a bishop must be blameless, the husband of one wife, just one, and not one at a time, one wife. Temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior. He must be hospitable. In other words, he has an open door. He's not some man up there who you have to go through 14 secretaries to get to. Hospitable. Able to teach. Not given too much wine. You can give him a little, but not too much. <laughs> not given to wine. In other words, he's not addicted. He's not always at the bottle. He's not violent. He's not greedy for money. But he's gentle. He will walk with you and correct you in gentleness. He's not a harsh person. Not quarrelsome. Not looking for arguments to prove a point. Not covetous. 
one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? I heard a testimony many years ago about a pastor whose daughter went into a, a, a just embraced a really, real rebellious attitude. And when he could no longer manage his daughter, he took a sabbatical from the ministry. He says, I need to step back. And he gave himself to prayer and fasting until he saw a change in his daughter's life. After the first month, his daughter cottoned on to what was going on. Dad, why are you not going to work anymore? What's going on? And he explained to her, this is what's going on. Until my house is in order again, I'm disqualified from ministry. It was only a few weeks after that that his daughter realized the weight of what she was doing. You see, your actions affect more than just you. They affect your family. They affect your church body. And the fact that her father was so serious about what, about the calling and the responsibilities that he wasn't playing around, he wasn't playing games, his daughter's heart changed. She repented, she came back, and he was restored to ministry. Now, isn't that a powerful testimony? You know, the normal testimony is that the pastor's kids are the naughtiest. We say it's because we play with the congregation's children. The the children do. (laughs) Careful. But you understand what I'm saying. No excuses. There's clear, clear things here. He's not a novice of the word, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony, not just within the church, not just those who are willing to sing his praises and say what a wonderful man he is. No, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside. So while he's in the shopping center, while he's at his, his kids' school meetings, while he's out in the sport, he still has a good testimony of behavior, lest he fall into reproach. So here's what I want to say to you is this. Study the lives of those you seek to learn from. And the principle is this. You can only replicate who you are. That's all I can do. I can only replicate who I am, what I really carry. And so those who follow will be replicated. Those you follow will be replicated in you. That's the principle. So if you're looking and you don't like what you see, steer clear. Amen? Be sober about this. This is your life that you're talking about. Now, that said, it's important that you don't expect perfection. A little bit of grace goes a long way. But understand hearts. Now, that's not a, that's not a blanket thing that means anything goes. James 5.17 says that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. In other words, he was human. He had flaws. Elijah was a difficult person. But yet he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years. Elijah's humanity, his weaknesses, his flaws, his foibles, were not a hindrance to Elisha. You understand? Now that doesn't excuse Elijah's hindrances and flaws, but they weren't a hindrance to Elisha. Why? Because he knew that God had called him to follow that man. And therefore he could see, and he had a context beyond the man. Elisha got it. In fact, Elisha so got it that he doubled Elijah's influence and effectiveness. He did double the miracles that Elijah did. He caught the heart of Elijah. He followed Elijah as Elijah followed the Lord. 
the same principle that Paul was saying. Neither did it in perfection, but there was a heart that was captured and caught, replicated and lived out. Jesus said it this way, I tell you this timeless truth, John 14, 12. The person who follows me in faith, believing in me, will do the same mighty miracles that I do, even greater miracles than these, because I go to be with my Father. The message says, the person who trusts me will not only do what I'm doing, but even greater things, because I, on my way to my Father, am giving you the same work to do that I have been doing. In other words, you, those who get it will become it. Those who catch the heart of those God has given, them to, given to lead them will become or embody the same kind of influence, will carry within them the same kind of grace. And that's the aim. That's the purpose. It's that the effectiveness and the grace and the calling that God has placed on one may be multiplied so that it continues to grow. That's the way Jesus did it. He multiplied and replicated himself in 12 people. Very different people who would take on the, the, the heart of Jesus and express it in very different ways. They'd go to different people in different environments. But they got it. And they lived it out. And we know the power. We're all here today because of the effectiveness of their ministry. God places us under people that we may catch what is on their heart. That we may see them and recognize it and model our lives after the example that they set. That we may catch the heartbeat of the calling of God that is on them and discover our place within that calling. That we too may take that calling beyond just an individual but may become the embodiment of that and it may replicate and reproduce once again through us. But this requires a meek heart. The whole motive behind these kinds of relationships, folks, is sincere love and care. The kind of sincere love and care which can be felt both ways. This is not a one-way street. Any relationship that is a one-way street has something wrong with it. It's either abusive or it's controlled and domineering and it's wrong. Hard attitudes of sincere love and care going both ways. You see, for me to truly lead somebody in the ways of the Lord and to, and to hear from God on their behalf and to speak into their lives, I need to be invested in them. I need to care about their well-being. Otherwise, I'm going to use them to fulfill my plans and purposes, bring them into so that they can, they can help me with what I've got to do. And that's, that's the wrong approach completely. It's about recognizing and loving somebody and, and encouraging them to be who God has called them to be. But at the same time, that person needs to recognize, honor, and value the person that God has given to them to help shape and mold them, to love them, to honor them, to respect them. You see, the purpose for, for this is spiritual development and welfare. And if you resist it, you resist what God wants to do in and through you. Hebrews 13, 17 says this, Be responsive to your pastoral leaders. Listen to their counsel. Why? They are alert to the condition of your lives and work under strict supervision of God. Listen. Keep an open heart. What's he saying? Embrace a heart of meekness towards them.
I want to say to you today that one of the greatest honors you can give someone is to heed their advice. Think about that. We often think honor is words lip service. Oh, you mean so much to me. You're such a wonderful person. You're so kind. You're so gracious. Talk is cheap, folks. My wife often says that to me. Her, her love language is not words. Her love language is action. I could write her a poem. She'd go, oh, it's not going to move her. Why? Words is your thing. You're good with words. It's not fair. Don't write me a poem. Go wash the dishes. Talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. And very often we give honor is, we think honor is communicated that way. No. Honor is communicated with substance, but most of all, honor is communicated through heeding the counsel of another. What does it communicate? It says, I value what you say highly. I value it so highly that I am willing to allow what you say to influence me, to influence the way I think and to change the way I think. There's no greater honor that you can give to somebody than to let them influence your life. That is a position of huge respect. Now, you may think, therefore, that the greatest dishonor is just to disregard somebody's advice. But it's not. It is okay to disagree with somebody. It is okay to hear what they have to say and to formulate your own views and your own opinions, as long as you do so in sincerity. That's not a dishonor to somebody, to listen to what you say and go, you know what, Clive, I actually disagree with what you're saying. And I'm being honest and upfront with you. No, the greatest dis- one of the greatest dishonors you can give to somebody is to pretend to heed their advice, whereas actually dismissing it as irrelevant or useless. Oh, yes, pastor. Yes, yes, yes. I'll do that. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Generally, what it is to, hmm, thank you, but I'll pray about that. I've seen many people over the years call Pastor Andreas Pastor. I've seen many people call him Spiritual Father. And I've watched as they articulate with their mouths a sentiment that they undermine through their decisions and through their actions. They like the idea of having somebody over them to cover, protect, and to bless them. But they will choose how that voice is able to lead and to guide them. You see, when I recognize that God has given me a spiritual father or mother, I recognize that God intends to use them to bring about change in me. Therefore, there is a requirement placed upon me by God to heed their counsel with great weight. Because they become a conduit through which God brings wisdom and correction in my life. Let me put it to you this way. The danger in all of this is that the lens through which you and I perceive God and the world around us determines the way we respond to Him and to the world around us. What do I mean by lens? I mean your perspective, the way you, uh, the way you see things, the way you understand God and the Word of God. Your lens is shaped and it's colored by the way you think, your experiences, and your personality. Think of cellophane, colored cellophane. You know, like you decorate presents with? You get red, you get yellow, you get blue. Now, when you look through that, everything, if you've got a red one, everything looks red. Because that red cellophane filters out the light. It doesn't let blue in, it doesn't let yellow in, it, 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 it 
doesn't it? Purple, it, 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 it filters the spectrum. And so everything you look at looks rosy through, through that point of view. It functions as a filter, letting some things in and some things out. Now, your perspective, your lens, the way you think acts in the same way. It's a filter. It allows some things in and some things out. And this is both a gift and a limitation. It's a gift because your filter has been established, your lens has been established through things that you've learned along the way. You've learned lessons. You've had had victories, you've had failures, and you've established certain ways of thinking. But here's where it becomes a limitation. You interpret the Word of God through the lens that you have, whether you want to or not. You interpret insight through the lens that you have, your circumstances through the lens that you have, whether you want to or not. Why? Because that's how you are programmed to think. And here's what I've seen happen over and over again. People say, I want counsel. I'd like you to help me. Or noticing somebody who's in a difficult situation and saying, this is what the Lord says about that situation. And when they say things like, okay, I will pray about it, what they're saying is, I'm going to take what you are saying and I'm going to put it through my lens and my filter. But because it acts like a filter, it doesn't make it through. And so they continue on with sincere conviction, but without the wisdom that God is trying to minister to them. Why? One reason. No meekness. They are not willing to allow, and not just anybody's opinion, spiritual oversight, spiritual authority, to speak into their life and to correct them and say, you know what, your lens here has a problem with it. It needs to be fixed. You need to be changed. And so what happens is they perpetuate the same life cycle over and over again. They make the same. You see this in people who get married and divorced and married and divorced and married and divorced. You see it with people in business. They start a new business as a measure of success, but because of the way they think about things, they end up in trouble. And God comes and delivers them, and then after a little while, they're in trouble again. And after a little while, they're in trouble again. You see it in people in their personal finances. You see it in their work situations. They have to go from job to job to job. Oh, because those people are too controlling. And because those guys don't know what they're doing. And because they didn't... It's always somebody else. And yet the pattern repeats itself again and again. Why? Because they've never allowed somebody to truly tamper with the filter, the the, the way in which they perceive all of these things and make the necessary internal changes. They've already come to the conclusions of why things are like they are. Now, I want to give you very quickly two examples from Scripture because I see I'm running out of time. And these two examples uh, exemplify what I'm trying to communicate with you here. The one is Saul and the one is David. And uh, the, the context is this. Both of these men messed up. For David, let's look at him first. Second Samuel 11 is the story of David and Bathsheba. David should have been on the front lines at war. He was up in his castle. He was up on his roof one night looking out. He sees Bathsheba. And being king, he abuses his power and takes advantage of this woman. He says to his servants, go and bring her to me. And he has a night of pleasure with Bathsheba. Puts her back home. And now he realizes, oh, she's married. He's got to make a plan. And so David justifies a plan in his own heart and mind to, take, to have Uriah put on the front lines 
of military warfare, he instructs the general to make foolish strategic decisions, in other words, to chase the enemy right up to the walls of the castle where arrows can hit them and stones can be dropped on them. And that happens, and men die so that David can get this Uriah guy out of the way and he can have Bathsheba for himself. And David justifies his decisions and justifies his actions all along the way. He is is fully cognizant of what is going on here, and he thinks he can solve this problem. Now, chapter 11 ends with these words, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So as much as David thought this was okay, God was not pleased. Chapter 12 begins with Nathan going to David, and he rebukes David. He gives him an analogy, and he corrects David and says, this is you, this is what you have done to Uriah. And in verse 13, David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. You see, in the presence of Nathan, the representation of God's voice, the prophet, in his life, David's justification is stripped away. He repents. He allows Nathan to correct him. He adopts Nathan's way of thinking about what he has done, and he changes. Now, there were consequences that David suffered for those actions but his heart was willing to change. The outstanding characteristic of David, (coughs) excuse me, is that the Bible says he was a man after God's own heart. He was meek. He was willing to change to be corrected. Now let's look at Saul, David's predecessor. 1 Samuel 13, we find Saul making offerings that it's not his place to make. It's Samuel's job to make the offerings. But Saul reasons in his heart, while Samuel's not here, I'll just do this thing. And he takes liberties that he, that he shouldn't take because he's become proud and he's become puffed up. In 1 Samuel 15, God says, I want you to go and destroy the Amalekites. And Samuel spares, destroys everything except King Agag because, you know, he wants to now bring him back and parade this man. He thinks better of, what, of God's plan and he does his own thing. And again, he justifies his idea and his opinion above God's. Now, in both cases, the prophet Samuel has to come to Saul and correct him, and he does. But the truth is that there's something that, that, that Saul hears what Samuel says. The first case, he says, Yeah, but you weren't here. That's why I did it. I'm justifying myself. In the second case, Paul says, Yes, but I, we did kill everybody. I mean, it's just the king. And then when, Saul, when, when Samuel begins to squeeze him, he says, No, but the people. And eventually he says, Okay, I did the wrong thing, but. Still, would you magnify me in front of the people? His heart remains unchanged. There's no meekness in him. And from that time, he was rejected. That chapter ends, 1 Samuel 15, 35. Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Here's what happened. The man that God had set as spiritual oversight in Saul's life to lead him in God's ways realized there's no point to this anymore. And he withdrew. Have it your way, Saul. Reap the consequences, Saul. And that is, in essence, what happens. When we fail to recognize and to honor those that God sends to us, when we do not receive the correction that they they provide us with, when we do not receive the teaching and the counsel, when we are not willing to be meek, to change, to fit, what's going to happen is their influence withdraws naturally. Because if it doesn't, it's force. I know you have to make it. No one's going to make you do anything. But if you don't want to cooperate, that's fine. That's your choice. But you will stay stuck where you are 
And those are very sad words. Those are very sad words in the Bible where it says, well then, Samuel just retreated. He wasn't going to get anywhere with Saul. And that was it. The kingdom was taken from him because he would not be meek. I believe if Saul was repentant, could have changed. Saul started as a very humble man. But he didn't finish that way. Let me close with these verses of Scripture. Proverbs 21.2 says, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. Every one of us thinks we're doing the right thing, we're going the right way, which is what makes it very difficult for us to receive counsel that says, actually, the way you're thinking is not right, and you need to embrace this thought pattern, because this is what word, the God's Word says. When our hearts have no desire for correction, we become stuck. Proverbs 12, 15, the Passion Translation says this, A fool is in love with his own opinion, but wisdom means being teachable. Being teachable. Now I want to say to you this morning, I understand that I'm speaking this in the context of a spiritual family that understands the principle of spiritual mentoring, spiritual fathers and mothers. And I enjoy a rich and a wonderful relationship with many of you. And I, I, am, I am very blessed of God to, to speak into your lives, to encourage and to honor you. Uh, to, 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 to have the honor of being able to influence you with the Word of God, not just with opinions. But maybe there's parts of your heart and mind where you know the Lord's been working. Maybe there's things where you have set your mind on a certain way of thinking, like Saul, and you will justify that way of thinking, and you're going to justify your actions despite. I want to encourage you today. That will become your limiting factor. That will cause the wisdom of God to dry up in your life, at least through the vessel through God that God has ordained for you. Know who it is that God has called you to. Maintain a meek and a submissive and a humble spirit before them. Because through them, God wants to do mighty things in your life. They may not be perfect, but if that who is, is who God has chosen for you, going anywhere else will be like like the Galatians, getting involved in other things that will lead you astray and will lead you away from the call of God that is upon your life. You cannot fulfill your spiritual destiny anywhere else but the place and the relationships in which God places you. That may change over time, that may, but know where God has placed you and maintain an open heart for it will be grace and it will be life to you. Shall we stand together? Thank you, Eddie. God, I want to thank you this morning for this spiritual family. And I want to thank you that there are fathers and mothers among us who are after your own heart, Lord God. People who love the church. They want the best for, the, for your people. They truly deeply love and care for their welfare and they are invested in their lives. And I want to thank you. I, as you know, am a product of this kind of relationship, Father God, and I've seen the impact that it can have. I am who I am today because of those I have allowed to influence me. Through, through, through their hand, your hand has been evident in my life. And I'm so grateful to you for them, my Lord God. And Lord, I want to thank you also for the privilege that every one of us have to exercise influence, encouragement, 
wisdom, correction, grace in the lives of others and, and brothers and sisters and even spiritual sons and daughters among us. That we may point them to you and point them to the truth. Lord, this morning I want to pray that for those among us, Lord God, who know who their spiritual oversight is, I want to pray that a, a spirit of deep honor and gratitude will come upon our hearts once again, Father. Because through those channels, Lord, so much life is transferred, so much impartation is received. And Lord, where meekness perhaps has been waning, Father, I want to pray that you would cause your spirit of meekness to come upon us. Your word says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. There is something in the, the, the meekness of the heart that enables us to receive what we need. And that when meekness is absent, Lord God, there's a blockage that is unable to receive. And so, Lord, I want to pray this morning that where repentance is necessary, Holy Spirit, that you would grant it. That where realignment is necessary, Father God, that you would make that very clear. That we would know, Lord God, who it is that you've called us to, to recognize, to follow their example, and to allow them to speak into our lives. And Father, I want to pray this morning that this would be an active thing and not a passive thing. And I pray that today in the name of Jesus. Amen. We hope that you've enjoyed this message. For additional resources and more information, come and visit us at alphaomega.org.za.